here this morning and those that are visiting with us, we're very happy to have you as well uh, visiting with us at uh, Bethany. Uh, I hope that you'll hope that you'll feel welcomed and uh, blessed by being here today. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter seven. John chapter seven. This is now the main event of our worship is the ministry and the preaching of the Word of God. So we want to read beginning at verse 14 all the way through verse 31. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own Authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears... No one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I came from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's pray together, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship. We thank you for the uh, songs we sing. We thank you for... Uh, the fellowship we have in Christ, and we thank you this morning for the Word of God, which which teaches us about who you are and shows us who we are 
in you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, uh, encourage us, teach us, cause us to be drawn close to you, uh, that we might walk with you and glorify you and make much of you in this evil world we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The events of chapter 18 through, or chapter 7, verses 18 to 24, are set at the midpoint of the Feast of Booths. Now, we talked about the feast some, some weeks ago, and uh, if you recall, Jesus' brothers were trying to convince him to go to the feast and, and rally a gathering at the feast, do some miracles, do some signs, so that people would see that uh, he was uh, one to follow. Of course, his brothers were unbelievers. They, they did not believe in him. And so um, Jesus didn't go to the feast at the same time they did. But about the midpoint of the feast, he came, he came to Jerusalem and... He was there in Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he began teaching the people. As he was teaching, he divulged the fact that the Jews were seeking to kill him. The people who were unaware of the circumstances that had taken place from chapter 5 were thought he had lost his mind, that he had been overtaken by a demon. He'd gone insane. Jesus then turns the law they claim to keep back on them and proved that they were guilty of the same thing that they were accusing him of. That's the way it, that's the way it often happens. People who want to tell you just how bad you are and what things you're doing wrong are usually people who are doing the same things or like things that they're accusing you of. He said to them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. They marveled at the work that had been done there in, as they, as Jesus healed this man at the pool of Bethesda. He accused the Jews of working on the Sabbath, citing the Reich of circumcision, and they're breaking the law of the Sabbath as well. If, if, they could, if they could all do the work necessary to do a circumcision, which would have taken a lot of work to prepare for, then it was kind of absurd to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath when he made a whole man who had been lame for 38 years whole. In fact, the truth of circumcision didn't originate with Moses. And he tells them that it originated with Abraham, Genesis chapter 17. To this, he makes a concluding remark. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's a good rule for us to all remember. Judge with right judgment. How do you do that? Jesus literally commands them not to make judgments based upon 
subjective appearances. If you make judgments based upon subjectivity, you will go wrong almost every time. It's, It's looking at someone and thinking something that may not be true. I remember I was sitting in the office one day. This happened a few years ago. And I heard the door open and I can see who comes in and out of that door sitting there. The door opened and this this man walked in and he had a long trench coat almost to the ground. He had uh he, he he had a beard and his hair was all the way down his back and he looked like he was homeless, which he was. He walked through. I didn't know what to expect. I thought, has he got a gun under that trench coat or is he, you know, walked in, he came right into my office and sat down. Turned out to be one of the nicest guys I've talked to in a long time. He was just down on his down on his luck, he needed uh, something. He needed some way to make some money so he could get something to eat. And he did not ask for a handout. He asked for work. Well, it was summertime, and so I said, "Sure, come with me." And so there was a there was a broom there, and I said, "If you'll sweep the pebbles off of that parking lot right there, I'll make sure you have enough money to go buy you some food." Now, if I had just been judging by appearances, what I felt subjectively by looking at him, I would not have wanted to spend any time trying to find out who he was. Judge by right appearances, Jesus said. Literally, evaluate by objective examination and scrutiny. He was talking about himself. Look at me and examine what I've done, who I am. They would have seen that he was indeed who he said he was. The legalism and stifling rules of the Pharisees were harsh judgments. They were censorious judgments. The regulations, the kind of regulations that they placed upon the backs of the people were not godly. And they were always unacceptable. Those kinds of things are always unacceptable to God. We do not live by a legislated set of rules and and regulations. We live by the grace of God. Certainly we have commands that God has given us, but we follow those in a, in loving obedience to Him, not as a Not as a weight that has to be done by sheer duty as from a hard taskmaster. Jesus said, judge not, in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, that's how you'll be judged. The precedent for such actions were already set in the Old Testament when God told Samuel, as Samuel was looking for a a new king of Israel, God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. And there he would find one that would become king that God had chosen. And this is what he said to Samuel. 
Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. He's talking about uh, David's brother who was big and strong and handsome. Don't look on his appearance for I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And he found in David a man after his own heart. There was an indictment by Jesus in this passage to the utter lack of faith and theological understanding of God's law to these Pharisees. It's so easy to look on the outward appearance of what individuals and of individuals and make judgments based on that. And Jesus said, don't make deliberations that way. Evaluate on righteous standards of morality and justice. Every situation with the Word of God is your legal and moral authority. It's the Word that we base this on, not what we think or how a person appears. Now, if the Jews had acted that way, they would have discovered that Jesus was exactly who He claimed to be. But they were blinded by their pride and by their Religious system. Now in verses 25 through verse 31, we have the reaction of the people with regard to what Jesus has said. Jesus has claimed to be from God the Father. He has claimed that his message was from God. And now the people react to it. This is the point from which Jesus would now walk in the shadow of the cross that he would bear not six months from this point. From verse verse 25, the cross is now looming over him. Some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem were aware of the murderous intentions of the Jews to kill Jesus. We see that in verse 25. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Some of the people knew that the Jews were out to kill Jesus. This is a rhetorical question that demands a positive response. And the answer to that is yes, this is the one whom the Jews are seeking to kill. He was the one who had condemned their hypocrisy and their legalism. He was the one who had debated with them in public and humiliated them for their lack of spiritual understanding and the law. He was the one who had cleansed the temple and had displayed the power of Messiah. And he was the one who had done many miracles and many signs that proved he was the Christ. So the people, when they recognized that he was the one they were seeking to kill, they said, 
Well, here he is speaking openly. Why haven't they come to arrest him? Interesting, that word openly, as he spoke openly in verse 26, is a word that means boldly, confidently, which fits very well in the attempt to arrest him, which follows in just a few more verses. Of course Jesus spoke confidently. Of course he spoke courageously. That would have been a huge comparison to the silence of the Pharisees. He was one that spoke with heavenly authority. Just exactly what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Christ would do in chapter 50 of Isaiah, verses 7 to 9. They picked up on his words and they began to reason in their minds based upon the knowledge of the Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures. This is what Isaiah 50 says. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who indicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, and the moth will eat them up. This was spoken of the Messiah. The people would have recognized these scriptures. They recognized the boldness of Christ. He was was not like the other teachers who vacillated back and forth or always had someone they had to quote as a reference of authority. Jesus was referencing the authority of heaven. The early church also had this same kind of boldness, this same kind of confidence. We see them in Acts chapter 4, amazing the leaders by their preaching and their prayers. We see them in Acts chapter, uh, we see Paul in Acts chapter 9 and 13 and 14 and 18, boldly going into town after town and preaching the gospel. And in chapter 19, Paul preached so preached freely and boldly in the synagogue there in Ephesus for three months. Paul's prayer on his behalf was that he might have boldness to continue. I'm convinced that the days are coming in which we will have to have boldness to continue. For Christianity, true Christianity, is under attack. Like it has not been in this country that I have known. Paul Requests of the Ephesian church, pray for me that my word, that words may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He writes it to the Philippians. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
to the Thessalonians, he said, We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. How does that kind of historical confidence affect us? We look back and we see Christ boldly teaching. We see the apostles boldly preaching and boldly standing for Christ. How does that affect us? The writer of Hebrews tells us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 with me. Hebrews 4, look at verse 16. Let's back up to verse 14 and get a little context with this, okay? Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended back to the Father. He has passed through the heavens. He has now taken His seat at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we can have bold confession of Him. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's how we do it. That Those words, let us then with confidence, comes from the same, these are the same words used in verse 26 when Jesus says he, it says he spoke openly. To speak openly is to speak boldly. It is to speak with confidence. And how do you do that? You draw near to the throne of God by His grace in Christ. You draw near. There's no other way to to do it. So the people began to wonder if the authorities have been keeping something from them. Do the Jews know that this is that Jesus is the Christ and they're they're not telling us these are things going through their minds but then their knowledge of messiah brings confusing questions to their minds and i found this portion quite interesting notice there are two lines here in verse um, in verse 27 they say, we know where this man comes from. And then they go on to say, when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So what are they saying? Well, this is, a, this is kind of a spot of irony. Their misunderstanding brings about an irony from Jesus. But notice what they said. We know where this man comes from. They knew. That Jesus was from Galilee and they knew his family background. This is certainly hinted of in Matthew 13 when they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? 
They knew who he was and where he was from, from an earthly standpoint. And then they say this, and when, and, now they're putting these two things together. We know where this man comes from and we know who he is. We know who his family is. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Well, was that true? This was a total misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the Old Testament scriptures and a lack of knowledge or recognition of the person of Christ. For example, they took Isaiah 53 verse 8 out of context and said, which says, who will declare his generation? Isaiah 53 8. Who will declare his generation? Speaking of the Messiah. Completely out of context, they made it mean no one could know what day that he would appear. They also took a verse out of Malachi. Malachi 3 verse 1, which says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So they put verses like this together, passages like this together, to mean that no one really knows where, when the Messiah will come, and there's no way of knowing what generation he will be in. And, And on top of that, he will just appear in the temple. He will materialize instantly in the temple. None of those things were true. These misconceptions... They had in their minds that the Messiah would appear suddenly and he would redeem Israel. These misconceptions were widely believed among the Jewish teachers and consequently among the people, as we see here. One Jewish, one Jewish antagonist by the name of Trypho of the second century was reported by Justin Martyr, who who was a contemporary of Trypho, to have said this, But Christ, if he has indeed been born, now remember this is the second century, and Trypho is writing this or saying this, if but if but Christ, if he has been born and exists anywhere, is unknown, and does not even know himself, and has no power until Elias comes to anoint him and make him manifest to all. Well, what is he saying? He was saying, if the Messiah does exist, he doesn't know he's the Messiah. And he'll have to wait until, until Elijah comes and tells him he is Messiah. The Jews believed that Elijah would return. You remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross. They said they looked to see if Elijah would come and rescue him. The Jews even today in their Seder feast have a seat for Elijah. Who they believe will return and introduce the Messiah. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist was 
Elijah. He was that Elijah-like person who was to announce the Messiah. Matthew 11, 13 and 14. For all the prophets and law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, Jesus said, he is Elijah who is to come. John was the Elijah to come. He was the one that announced, there's the Son of God who will take away the sin of the world. And he pointed them to Christ. So what was the major premise of the people? That no one would know where the real Messiah came from. Their minor premise was that we know where Jesus comes from. And so the conclusion is, Jesus cannot be the real Messiah. Now with that popular view in mind and knowing who Jesus was and where he came from, they assumed that he could not be the Messiah. They allowed their human thinking to override what the clear teaching of Scripture was. Of course, the Scriptures could have cleared up all these matters. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 foretold that he would be of David's line, born in David's city, Bethlehem, which was a city in Judea. But you see, they were saying, he's from Galilee. No prophets come out of Galilee. Later they recall this in verse 42. When they say he is not, he has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, a village where David was. They, their scriptural knowledge finally kicks in. But to this obvious misunderstanding and mistranslation of scripture, Jesus, it says, proclaimed. I want you to notice that word. That word. He proclaimed. As he taught. Verse 28. The word proclaimed is, is a very graphic word. It means to cry out loudly. It was a word that was used, actually used to describe the sound that a crow makes. Now we've all seen crows. They're fascinating bird. I looked out this morning. A crow sitting right at the top of the tree. One of their lookouts. And you can always tell when crows are around because they got big mouths. They're loud. And the sound that a crow makes is kind of a guttural sound in its, that it makes. What is this saying? It's saying that Jesus lifted up his voice and he literally, he, he was literally screaming at the top of his voice at this crowd of people in the temple. In other words, he yelled to get their attention. Verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from? That's the irony. That's the statement of irony. Now, there is what might appear, and some have tried to use, a statement of contradiction found in this passage 
as it's compared to a passage in chapter 8. If you look at chapter 8, you'll see it in verse 19. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So, they say, or Jesus says in chapter 7, you know me and you know where I come from. But in chapter 8, he says, you don't know me and you don't know my father. But it's not a contradiction at all. There's no contradiction. Jesus is simply making a comparative statement to uncover their unbelief and hardness of heart. He knows what's in their hearts. And he is literally saying, in in essence, so you think you know me and where I come from? You think you know who my father is? To turn it into a statement, it might be something like this. That's what you think? You, You do not know me or my father And you do not believe where I came from, even though I've told you plainly. Why? Because Jesus said in in chapter 8, verse 19, If you knew me, you would know my Father. This goes back to the statement that he made, If anyone wants to do God's will, he will know that what I'm saying is true. He knew their earthly or they knew his earthly origin but they did not know his descent from heaven. So Jesus reiterated once again that he had not come of his own accord but that the real father the real father from heaven had sent him. And though they bragged about their knowledge of God and they that they knew who Jesus was, they did not know who his father was, and they did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. What a stinging indictment this is to their unbelief, those people who claim to be the religious teachers of the day. It's no different today. I read just this past week, that uh, Andy Stanley, who has a uh, mega church in the Atlanta area, has denied that the Old Testament scriptures are uh, inspired by God; they can't be relied upon. And he said many other things too, which I won't go into this morning. I just want you to know there are people out there that are teaching. Heresies. And you've got to be careful when you listen to them that you're not swayed by that kind of teaching. MacArthur writes, like the sons of Eli, they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Like those of whom Jeremiah wrote, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. 
Though the prophet, through the prophet Hosea, God lamented, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. While Paul wrote that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. These people were just simply false teachers who thought they had a relationship with God, but they really didn't. Think of the privileges that the Jews missed, that they passed up. And not recognizing Jesus as their Messiah. The only way to really know the real Father in heaven is through His Son, Jesus. I'm not talking about religious acts. I'm not talking about religious deeds. But I'm talking about truly repenting of one's sins before God and relying upon Jesus as Lord of one's life. While Jesus was speaking to these Jews, the Jews sent the temple police. They plotted against him to arrest him and sent the temple police. But it wasn't his time. And no one laid a hand on him because his hour hadn't come. Six more months of earthly ministry. Six more months of hate speech against him. Six more months of satanic oppression and difficulties. But I want you to notice a statement in verse 31. Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. There were some who believed. There were some who saw that He was the Christ. And they believed in Him. But the vast majority did not. Do you believe in Him this morning? Have you repented of your sins and found in Christ the forgiveness of sin? I trust that you have, but if you have not, then you have an opportunity this morning to confess your sins before God, to repent of them and follow Christ and find in Him the forgiveness and the freedom of righteous living. It can only be done through Him. He is the only way, and there is no other. So I trust this morning that if you don't know Him, you'll trust Him today. Do not boast yourself of tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this Lord's Day, for the opportunity to come and to worship. And I pray, Lord, that You would bless this time. Um, these The narratives of these uh, passages speak of how the Lord dealt with the people there in Jerusalem and the Jews who were desiring to kill Him. He was hated. 
and we will be hated for his name's sake. All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And yet in, in it all, we find the great joy and treasure of knowing you, the true and living God, the real Father in heaven, through his Son, Jesus. And we're thankful for that. So I pray this morning that if there's someone here who does not know you, who has not repented of their sins, that you would, that you would alert them to the danger that they're in. That judgment awaits them. And I pray, Father, that you would, that you would bring them to the place of repentance and faith in Christ to trust Him. To follow him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for being here with us this 